Good afternoon. Welcome to the Conventional Sniper Podcast. I'm your spotter, Justin Cluddy. I'm here with General Don Boldick, and we are here at New England College. So, sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. I've been kind of talking you up the past week or so, like, oh, man, I I got this dude in the podcast. It's legit. You guys got to listen. So a couple of my buddies are like, ah. All right, I guess I'll listen finally. All right, so, good. But, but hey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Glad to help. Ah, thanks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast, and uh, let's knock out the S2 brief real fast. So just a reminder that the Army Sniper Association will have our podcast, the Conventional Sniper Podcast, in April uh, for the International Sniper Competition, and uh, we'll be doing a live, as best as best we can live, close to the match, uh, you know, baseball-style breakdown play of uh, the match so make sure you stay tuned for that we'll be rolling out some other stuff probably the first of the year too so stay stay tuned for that and uh yeah sir hey thanks for coming to the podcast again you're welcome so if you, if you don't mind um if you could just explain when you joined the army why you joined the army and uh yeah we'll just start there okay well <clears throat> it's great to join you here from new england college where i am currently a full-time professor i teach leadership and area studies inside the political science department, one on Africa, one on Afghanistan, and it's um, really a uh, great opportunity. So, getting back to me, I was born and raised in Laconia, New Hampshire, um, in the Lakes Region area of the great state of New Hampshire, and uh, lived my whole life there, uh, played sports, went to school, uh, learned my work ethic through my family on, the, on our family farm in Guilford. Uh, three things I took away from there were focus, hard work, and never quit. Those, <clears throat> those things have served me well my entire life in everything that I've done. Graduated from Laconia High School in 1981. Eleven days later, joined the Army as Private Baldick. Um, <clears throat> served at Fort Carson, Colorado in the 4th Infantry Division and then in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, I was uh, went from private to sergeant and then decided it was... I would go to college, join an ROTC program, and got commissioned in 1988 as a second lieutenant, and then had a great career uh, in special operations uh, where I commanded at every single level uh, and had the opportunity to finish my career as the Special Operations Command Africa Commander. Um, uh, That was really a great command. It's a division-level Special Operations Command. We had the responsibility to the United States AFRICOM commander for special operations missions uh, in Africa. 28 countries, about 2,000 special operators, uh, and um, uh, we were completely focused on uh, countering violent extremist organizations and building that capability and capacity in our partner nations. Uh, An area two and a half times the size of the United States, so... um, large command area uh, and uh, very much an economy of force operation but uh, the guys uh, that I worked for that did the missions there uh, did uh, did superb work and it was an honor to be their commander. Um, I'm married, I've been married for over 30 years uh, to my wife Sharon. We met in college uh, and we have three boys, uh, and 29 has, has his own business in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, married three grandchildren, little Jay, Hurricane Hadley, and Hannah Banana, as I call them. Uh, and then I have two other boys. Uh, one is in the Pennsylvania National Guard. 
uh, transferring up here to the Na uh, New Hampshire National Guard as he leaves Shippensburg University, come back to New Hampshire this month, and my youngest boy is at uh, Purdue University. He's a junior there. Uh, Your son that's in the Guard, is he, uh, is he enlisted or officer? He's enlisted, uh, and he is uh, in the field artillery. Uh, works in the uh, Fire Direction Control Center, the, uh, the FTC. FTC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyways, uh, yeah, he's on his third year of a six-year um, commitment. Right. right. So, anyways, uh, but we're. Um, I love the state of New Hampshire. I grew up here. My family's here. Um, we spent a lot of time here. Sent my boys back to work on the family farm to develop a work ethic in them, particularly around haying time. There's nothing that builds <laughs> more character than haying. Um, Get some <clears throat> strong muscles from that, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, a lot of hard work, uh, and plus my dad needed the help. So, um, you know, this is a great state to have grown up in. It taught me a lot, and it was, you know, as they say, a no-brainer when we were deciding where we were going to come back home to. My wife's family is predominantly in northern Massachusetts, uh, and my family is in the Lakes Region area mostly. And um, we settled on Stratum for a couple reasons. One was halfway between both our families. Two, uh, we wanted to work with veterans, and we knew that this was going to require travel and being near Manchester Airport and Boston mm -hmm. was uh, obviously a consideration. You know, as, New as small as New Hampshire is, like the travel distances here are tough to work with because there's not anything that's like a definite grid pattern. Right. They're all V-shaped. Right. Like the two main highways are V-shaped or the right. MSRs as we yeah. know them, mm -hmm. the main supply routes. They're, they're V-shaped and then everything else is kind of Crisscrosses. Like, yeah, spaghetti strings yeah. Yeah. around major terrain features. So right, exactly. It's, exactly. you know, you could only be 30 miles away from something, but it'll take an hour and a half to get there. <laughs> That's right. You know, but. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to me, this state has, you know, I mean, this state has everything. It's, it's you know, it has the mountains, it has the lakes, it, you know, it has all the recreational sports you want to do, uh, whether it's spring, summer, winter, or fall. Great universities, a great a great culture surrounds the live free or die motto. Um, In some states, that would be offensive, just the yeah, motto alone. Yeah, freedom and individualism <laughs> and, you know, those things that we value, uh, those things that bring people to our state, right? Um, and it's, a, you know, a great place, to, uh, great place to raise a family. So very proud to, one, be from New Hampshire, be a New Englander, and certainly proud of the opportunity that uh, me and my family have had to serve our country and then come back home and serve in a little bit different way, helping veterans, teaching at a university. And um, um, I have a small business called Truth to Power, and I go around and I uh, teach leadership in a time of conflict to small businesses and corporations and leaders, and, and, uh, and that keeps me busy. So. Uh, with those three things, um, we feel pretty fortunate that uh, we can do that in the place with, that we love. Yeah, well, it's, it's obviously great to have you and your family in New Hampshire. It's nice to have other veterans uh, that have kind of walked the walk and talked the talk. Uh, I've spent some time in Massachusetts Station there, and there wasn't that camaraderie of veterans there, mm -hmm. uh, especially guys that have kind of seen the, the austere conditions, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
and I'm sure you're aware of 10th Mountain Division's history in Afghanistan, especially mm-hmm. if, you know during the larger invasion portion. Um, when I got to the my 10th Mountain unit, there's tons of guys that are that were still around. They were at the first start and start major level by that mm-hmm. point, but they were like just some hard chargers. And actually, most of the snipers I've met in the army are either from Texas or from New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And some of the best guys that I've known that can pick up a rifle and you know. As some, as they would say, do God's work mm-hmm. and learn the math required of it. They're usually from New Hampshire or Vermont. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm sure if you know history well, the Green Mountain Boys have a pretty good reputation for yes, they do. accuracy with some mechanical equipment. But Rogers uh, Rangers. Yep, and and yeah. you've got uh, Merrill's Highway here as well. Merrill's Highway. Right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny when I when I tell army you know army guys like, hey, how come you not move to New Hampshire? Like, oh, it's because up in the Northeast. Is it in Canada? And they make some jokes about it. I'm like, well, the Rangers didn't think that, so. Yeah, you know it's <clears throat> some pretty good territory to, to hold for sure. Mm-hmm. But with territory wise, um, could you explain more about your time in Afghanistan a little bit? Sure. Um, I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, as a uh, as a company commander in the uh, battalion S three uh, when nine um, eleven hit. Uh, we were on our way to Jordan to do a very large uh, multi called the multi-country uh, regional exercise uh, in Jordan. Uh, and we thought that that might be canceled, but lo and behold, it was the only exercise that was not canceled because the King of Jordan asked President uh, Bush if he would still execute that, uh, that exercise. So we went over there. The exercise was shortened from 45 to 30 days. And then from there, we went directly into Uzbekistan. The interesting thing about Uzbekistan, Kajikistan, and uh, uh, Tajikistan is that my SF company uh, for an entire year was in their training, their special ops guys, right? And we developed great relationships with the embassy, great relationships with the country, great relations with our partner. So when it came time for our, um, our military at the senior levels, our country, uh, to figure out where we would launch out of initially to go into Afghanistan. All those countries came into play, either as logistical bases, refueling areas, or operational launch pads like Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for that one year prior to 9-11 where we built those relationships, people knew us, uh, they respected us. We had great relationships across the board. Um, it would have been a little bit more difficult to figure out how we were going to launch into Afghanistan for the initial invasions. So that was good. And, of course, our relationship with Pakistan also also helped because we went from Jordan to Uzbekistan. We did our mission planning to go into southern Afghanistan. And uh, we got on a MH, uh, excuse me, an MC-130, um, and we flew from there to Jacobabad. We transferred to MH-53s and went into Tarankout, landed, and, um, and made contact with our indigenous force and then were brought to Hamid Karzai, uh, where we began the planning for what would be known as the Southern Campaign, with Kandahar being the operational objective. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we spidered out to all the other uh, different provinces uh, in southern Afghanistan. By March of 2002, um, we had um, secured southern Afghanistan through, with, and by Afghans. 
and in my opinion, we should have left by June of 2002. Continue to support them with money, uh, continue to keep Karzai uh, moving forward, and let the Afghans uh, figure out their governance structure, figure out how they're going to do business there, instead of what we've done over the last 18 years, try to force a Western structure on top of a culture that doesn't understand that and can't afford it. So uh, we had an opportunity to leave, in my opinion. We, we decided to do nation building and build a big military and a big police and a big government, which that's not how they govern themselves. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very, uh, As we know. I guess, secular would be the word. Yeah. You know, village A is village A. They have their right. own rules. Village right. B has its own rules. Right. And you're lucky if those two villages get along. Right. You're really lucky. Yeah. And I think they're only... Uh, so why mess with that? Right. right, yeah. Don't I try to change it. it. Don't fix it if it's not broke, right? right. And the whole idea <clears throat> of, you know, <clears throat> bringing people together in the military and the, uh, and the police from different regions in Afghanistan, different areas, different villages, they don't talk the same, they don't speak the same dialect, mm -hmm. the same language, um, was uh, very difficult for them. They still, they still don't get it right. Uh, and yeah, I could go from one village, like you know, one. I was in Mordak for my first deployment, which is mm -hmm. kind of near the Tangy area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and we we were right near the district center there, and you'd go four or five miles up the road. Totally different language. The guy that runs that village, so to speak, the, mm -hmm. the village elder, he doesn't like the guy two villages down the road again. Right. So yeah. you're four different languages across a five mile area. But you know what? They figure it out, right? Yeah, you've they, got they no figure, choice. They figure out how to do it, and we. That's what we should have let happen mm -hmm. in, in June of 2002. Definitely the international community had a role. There were definitely things that we could do to help, um, but try to turn them into a Western-style government with a Western-style military and police, something that operates now at over 100% of their GDP. They can't afford it. They don't understand how to use it, really. Um, they secure themselves through rural arbitrage that they... Um, that they mobilize when their country is threatened. They did it against um, Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. They did it against the Brits. They did it against the Soviets. We helped them. You know, you always get outside help. Um, <clears throat> but they did it, right? In this case, you know, we're trying to do it, and we're trying to do it through, with, and by them in a structure that is not going, going, you know, going to. Uh, have the have the outcome that we're looking for. Not not a very good sustainable outcome. No, it's it's not a sustainable outcome. And look, look what we've done. I mean, eighty percent of Afghanistan, you know, rural areas of Afghanistan belong to the Taliban. That wasn't the case in the middle of twenty thirteen, was it? Um, and I can get into that uh, shortly. Something a lot of people don't know. But did my first rotation. Came out two thousand two. Uh, went back there. Uh, for two assignments between 2005 and seven, our battalion deployed for two, eight, nine-month deployments. Um, it was about six months off in between. And um, then I went to the War College, came out of the War College in 2009, went back to Afghanistan 2009, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Uh, That's a busy rotation schedule. Yes, from... From 2001 to 2013, I wasn't in Afghanistan in 2003 and 4 because I was at a Pentagon assignment, and I wasn't there in 2008 because I was in the War College. You basically lived in Afghanistan. I basically did. Took vacations yeah. to the United States. Right, that's right, <laughs> that's right, I did. And 
And what I understood about Afghanistan was the more you're there, the less you understand. Uh, and <clears throat> that um, our, you know, me included, senior leaders were getting it wrong. We weren't doing it right. Our service members were doing everything right. Everything we told them to do, they did, and they did honorably. Uh, we did not develop the right policy in Washington, D.C. to drive the right strategy, and our military leaders, the senior leaders, did not employ the right operational approaches. And I blame... You know, that's, that's a good point you bring up, and it's, it's, I'm hard-pressed to find anyone at, at senior-level leadership that goes, hey, we goofed. And yeah, we're we learning from our mistakes and going forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, that's probably one of the main reasons why I want to do a podcast with you, other than your experiences. A lot of times we have this thing on the line when the general comes around. I'm sure you may remember it. Mm-hmm. A general comes around, you'd be like, who the hell is this guy? Right. Why is he down here in my motor pool on Monday if I have light vehicles? Right. Or why is this dude down here in my hangar bay or whatever? And he's mm-hmm. in my section. He's all up in my stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That guy's no different than me, you know? And a lot of my leadership at the time when I was a private, they'd be like, yeah, that dude puts on his pants the same way I do every morning. And he calls his wife every day like I do. So what mm-hmm. makes him so special? And I think the first time I met you, I was like, man, that dude, he's a normal guy. Like, you asked me to call you Don. I was like, cool. This is simple. I can talk to you on a one-on-one level. I don't have to worry about, quote, the customs and courtesies, right? I can have a normal conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely key when you're trying to get stuff done. And I don't know if that's just because of where you grew up in New Hampshire, where it's like, hey, you know, just be a good person and work hard. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if that's some military training or a combination of the both. But more often than not, you get that general that's kind of like, I'm a general, so you call me sir and you respect my position. But I didn't I didn't feel that w- when I talked to you. I was like, all right, that dude puts his pants on normally like I do every day, and he doesn't think about it. It's a subconscious right. thing. And I think when I'm talking to you, it's very subconscious. Like, you know, you're Don, I'm Justin. Mm-hmm. Like, we've been hanging out for a long time. We're good buddies. We know where we come from. We get it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a huge key factor, I think, um, both operationally, you know, in your neck of the woods, right. and, and both, uh, I don't want to say politically, but just being a good person is super important. You know, it's that kinesic level engagement. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like a huge factor. And it's, it's very rare to hear someone say, I goofed, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to work harder, I'm going to work more efficiently, and find my deficiencies right. in that space. So it's, it's important that you bring that up. But Well, that's a good lead-in to, the, you know, the point that I, I want to make about learning from mistakes, right? And we, we did learn from our mistakes, and I surrounded myself with guys that I knew learned from those mistakes. When I went back to Afghanistan in 2009, I tried as a staff officer to get those points across, but it's very hard as a colonel staff officer <laughs> to get things across, right? Um, but in comes, you know, uh, General Stanley McChrystal with a different kind of idea and a different kind of approach. Uh, and it was the comprehensive, you know, counterinsurgency bottom-up a- approach as opposed to this top-down approach. We got to leverage the Europe, the rural population, right, for security, and so he asked us to put together a program. And a lot of great guys contributed to the program. It's no one person's program. Mm-hmm. It really bothers me. Everybody wants credit for it. I've been given credit for it by other folks, but I don't take credit for it. It's a combination of a lot of people putting a lot of things in place. I was just the colonel in charge of the you know special ops guys that had to uh, that had to implement it during its critical time with General McChrystal and General Petraeus. And we started implementing the program in late 2010. Now, 2010 was the highest casualty rate in Afghanistan for U.S. forces, right, of all the years that we were there. I mean, we lost some, you know, people every year, but 
2010 was the highest, right? And I think there was a recognition there by General McChrystal's because our approach was wrong, so we wanted to change it. We brought it in. General McChrystal leaves. General Petraeus comes in. Now, General Petraeus comes in, and he's a huge believer in our village stability operations uh, concept, and he's a huge believer in the Afghan local police concept. And so he gets, uh, he gets right behind this. And he really, really supports us in setting this up. And so I got to give him a tremendous amount of credit because without his four-star, you know, power, we wouldn't <laughs> have got the resources and the attention from people who knew better. This program was designed by the Afghans, listening to the Afghans and listening to our guys that were out there on the ground. This isn't a you know, a genius general officer, you know, Eisenhower plan, right? Right. This is a bottom-up driven plan, listening to guys and listening to experts inside and outside the military on what works in Afghanistan. And if you, if you get the local populace to be able to secure themselves and fight against the Taliban, and most importantly win, then you're going to secure a lot of area. And by the middle of 2013, it was unbelievable. 80% of Afghanistan under this program was being was was uh, under the Afghan government. Our our casualty rates on the U.S. side were going down, right? Mm -hmm. Down, lowest that they had ever been by the middle of 2013. Middle of 2013, beginning of 2014 rolls around. President Obama decides he wants out. But that got complicated by Iraq because Iraq started to implode. No general officer at the senior level that I was around during that time, and I had just became a promotable colonel to brigadier general, was pushing back on this idea. And I started pushing back on it. We had RAND studies and Center, Center for Naval Analysis studies that were saying, hey, listen, this village stability operations Afghan local police thing isn't perfect, but it's just about right. And it's a very successful counterinsurgency. Don't get rid of them, right? But we did. And the three, three and four stars and some of the two stars, particularly on the soft side, all jumped in on changing the strategy from bottom up to top down. And in short order, less than 24 months, from 14 to 16, Afghanistan's rural areas changed back over to the Taliban. ISIS came in, wasn't there before, and Al-Qaeda got stronger. Why do you think they jumped on that ship? Because they saw an opportunity, right, where one didn't exist before. And so they, and it, it's consistent their with their caliphate, right? And they want to put their stamp on it, right? Because they can and will come with resources. But one thing they forget is the Taliban is Afghan. They don't want ISIS or Al-Qaeda in there any more than they want us in there or 42 other countries. They just want right? to be left alone. They want to be left alone, mm -hmm. right? Another thing that we didn't pay attention to, stay too long and you'll become the enemy, right? Right. So, <clears throat> so now, 2016, the Afghans own the place again in a way, or the Taliban own it in a way they didn't. The, they're, they're, um, they're handing the military and the police their butts in every single engagement. And U.S. casualties are going up to where in 2018 and 19, they were higher than they were in 2010. So go from a strategy that's working and change it to one that doesn't work, and you pay a price. And you pay a price not only in being able to control territory, 
and being able to dictate terms to your enemy, you increase the casualties of your service members. And and it's like having it's like having an outer secured on, right. outer quarter cordon, right. like an outer ring security, right. and an inner ring. If your outer ring disappears, your inside yeah. ring is just going to get, you know, it's going to get smoked. Yeah, it's right. going to get smoked. And so. And so, to me, this is unforgivable. Not having a policy and a strategy. And this is Congress, too. This is the House Armed Services Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, and that leadership in Congress. It's the National Security Council staff, the administration. They're all at fault for bad policy. The military senior leadership are at fault for for um, bad strategy and operational approach. You know, you bring up a good point about this, about the Senate and the committees there. Because mm-hmm. if you look at Vietnam... Before Vietnam kicked off, the British had control of Vietnam. There was no insurgencies there. They had just about defeated, you know, every communist revolt there. They're waging a, a jungle warfare type uh, hearts and minds campaign, and then the British basically got out. The French got out, and they were gone because mm-hmm. Vietnam didn't want French there. But the British had been controlling Vietnam very well, and they had just about stabilized it, just like what you're talking about. The area is just about stabilized, not perfect. But just Never, about there. Perfect's not the standard. Right. Right. It, it, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It has right. to be right. Just about right. Yeah, That's no, what I say. Just it, about right. And that just about right is because you're going to have collateral on either side of the fence. And then people ask me, well, Don, how do you know it was just about right? Well, 80% of Afghanistan's rural area belonged to the Afghan government, number one. The Afghan government didn't have to send the police or the military down there to sustain it. The Afghan local police, the population was doing it. Why? Because it's their homes. And they were working together like they did under the Arbakai. One thing about your, they don't like each other, they don't like each other under normal circumstances. Well, they do when they're threatened. Right. The enemy of the enemy is the ally. That's right. And they'll come together and they'll support, and that's what they were doing. The other thing is, Mullah Omar in 2011, before he died, said, what they're doing now, we can't defeat. Impossible. We won't be able to operate. If they continue this, we're done. And he made the Afghan local police his number one target. And he sent Taliban after him, and the Afghan local police handed them them butts every single time. You know, I have to admit, so in '09, the Afghan police were an interesting concept because we were just starting to get them into Wardak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've walked through Wardak and the Tangy Valley, that whole area, and they were a bit sketchy at first. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, what really helped is we were able to kind of police them up a bit and give them that training like you're talking right. about. Yeah. But we had one specific AMP colonel that was not really on anyone's side other than the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And we conducted a raid on his house. We burned his compound to the ground. And we are like, look, this is not going to be tolerated. And what it had come to, the intelligence that we had gathered to be able to justify that, was he was literally blowing up Afghans and he was giving debt cord and explosives from the stuff that we were helping them with right. and giving it to the Taliban. And he was setting up all the IEDs. He was literally an insider threat, but, you know, a spy working in a kinetic way. Sure. And so we had lost a few guys pretty badly. We had been in conjunction with third group. We hit an IED, lost basically an entire crew worth of vehicle, a crew vehicle worth of guys. Mm -hmm. Another platoon had lost a guy in a QRF response to us. Third group had lost some guys uh, in responding to our two situation, two platoon IED stuff. The Afghan commandos had lost guys trying to respond to us. And we just kicked up this huge hornet's nest in Wardak, specifically mm-hmm. in Nurk. And it turned into literally fighting bees right. while standing with your finger in you know, in the hole in the bottom of the bee's nest. And that right. place just got absolutely crazy. And the same time that was going on, Nuristan was happening. And Nuristan got overrun. 
and we got put on a QRF notice to go into Neuristan. So mm -hmm. here I am, Joe Snuffy, right? And I'm, you know, my my I was in machine I was a machine gun team leader at the time. My gunner had gotten hit. Shrapnel came through our tent, collapsed our bedpost, hit him in the lungs. He had a collapsed lung. He's gone. Like half my platoon, kill in action, wound in action, they're gone. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a one-man gun team. I've got a 240 with 1,200 rounds, two bottles of water, mm -hmm. a hand grenade, and a backpack. Right. And they're like, all right, get on the bird. You're going to nurse stand. Mm -hmm. And I remember the I was 140 pounds at the time. I was a skinny dude. And I couldn't actually get up on the Chinook ramp to get into the helicopter. I had so much ammo in my pack mm -hmm. with a 240. And my squad leader was an invasion uh, of Iraq guy. One of my best friends to this day knows his stuff inside and out. Without him, I wouldn't I wouldn't be alive. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at me in the bird with a big old smile on his face. And he's like, if you live through this, you're going to be the greatest hero ever. And I was like, can I get up the ramp? I just need help. Let's figure out that stuff later. But the craziness of, of and actually at the time, we had also started implementing the APF-3, like kind of like the Sons of Iraq. Right. Yep. But we started implementing the APF-3. Yeah, the AP-3. Yeah, yeah, the AP yeah. mm -hmm. And those dudes were taking a licking locally. Mm -hmm. We'd lost like three or four entire pickup trucks worth of mm -hmm. guys. But the further we fought back, it mm -hmm. was beginning to stabilize extremely right. well. Yeah. And the AP-3 <clears throat> program was a precursor to the Afghan Local Police Village Stability Operations mm -hmm. Program, which is simply you put small, soft teams in these key villages, get them to all work together under one common cause, that's the Taliban. Get the Taliban to turn if you can, and we did that. We sat across the table from numerous Taliban who decided to switch sides. I mean, they, you know, they're not dumb. When, you know, they're from these places, and when they see the power change, they change. They just switch sides. So it's a wonderful thing to see, uh, but it's one of these things where you empower them to have the will to fight, um, and they own the fight, and they're going to own it much more when they turn around, and the only thing behind them is their house and their family, and they're going to fight hard for that, and the cost of it. One-sixth the cost to train an Afghan local policeman and sustain it, then it cost a policeman one-eighth the cost for a military guy. I may have that backwards, but bottom line is it's, it's cheap. cheaper. Yeah. They can afford it. They can't afford what we were building for them. Now, you combine that with our ability to target HVTs. High-value right? targets. Right, high-value targets, and take them out. Now you have complementary effects. Which right? is cutting the head off the snake. Exactly. And... You're you taking just, you the rest of the snake with you, right? Yeah. You got because they can't occupy that ground anymore. They the snake can't grow another head uh, because you've taken the snake's head and you've taken the body away from the head. You know, if you you can't be an effective leader if you don't have anything to lead, right? <laughs> if there's no leader to lead, you right. can't lead anything. Yeah, exactly. So this was all very doing very well, and my heart sunk the day I went to a briefing with the ISAF commander, General Dunford, at the time. Because this was successful through McChrystal, put it in place. Really, the lion's share of the, the, the support, um, I mean, the lion's share of the credit at that senior level should go to General Petraeus. And then General Allen did a very good job of it. General Dunford came in after Allen, and he took over. Um, and none of the three-star commanders of ISAF, except for David Rodriguez, agreed with this concept. Have you ever heard the... They all fought against it. They didn't mm -hmm. like it, right? Uh, and so you had three-star pushback on what Soft was doing, uh, except for General Rodriguez. Uh, and then you had General Petraeus making sure the three-stars understood, hey, 
the small, soft operations with this Afghan local police are doing stuff that entire brigades couldn't do. So, you know, mm-hmm. back off. We're going to support this because it's working because the Afghans recognize it. It's, it's how they've defended against enemies their entire lives, their entire culture. So do you right? think this whole program can be re-spun up now currently in Afghanistan? Think it can be done again? Oh, I absolutely think it can be done again, but not with the current people we have in place now. Let me, I want to back up for a second. So there's a lot of peace talks that go on every now and then right. with the Taliban yep. and yep. all that stuff. Have you ever sat at a table and looked at a guy across the table and, and know that that dude's in charge of Taliban and, mm-hmm. and had a peace talk with him? Yes. What's that like? So... Like, what's, what's not, not like a... a like, what's your personal feelings about it? Like, I know if I was sitting across the table, mm-hmm. and I think most people would sit, feel the same way, like, that dude's the enemy. That's literally the leadership that I'm right. sitting next to. Mm-hmm. My first question is, is how did we get a hold of him? Mm-hmm. And two, why aren't we killing this guy yeah. right now as he's right. sitting across the yeah. table? Yeah. Well, um, you know, we're being respectful to their Pashtun Wali code, and we're trying to get to no fighting, right? And we know that inside the Afghan culture... You know they they will switch sides and they will make agreements under themselves that will last a whole hell of a lot longer than we're going to make officially signing papers in in Qatar, right? Yep. Um, which I completely disagree with this whole. First of all, you can't do peace treaties and have the outcome that you're looking for when you don't have the advantage at the table, right? Right. Um, and so. They're only coming to the table because they want you out, right? They'll tell you anything you want to hear. Why? Because they control the 80% of Afghanistan. What the heck are they going to do? So I think it's a bad idea to do a peace plan. I think it's a, a better idea if we're not going to go back to the strategy that worked and we're not going to bring back the folks that know how to do it and put them in place because the they got rid of those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Or they've retired right now. I mean, it's, or they've we're go, retired. We're going on twenty. But they're years. still, but they're still able to serve, right? Because mm-hmm. we retire people way too young, right? The whole retirement system in the military is a joke. We let people go in, in the prime of using their brain, right? You know, that's. I don't mean to jump ship, and I got to ask this question because if I don't, someone's gonna be like, mm-hmm. "You told me you're gonna ask this question." Mm-hmm. So, the conventional army. Mm-hmm. specifically because this is the conventional sniper podcast, right? Mm-hmm. How can conventional snipers help in this stability operation? How can, I don't mean to say this to downplay things, but how can we use the psychological aspect to take and hold larger ground with mm-hmm. less troops, less money, but better training? How can mm-hmm. we provide a training solution to this vast space to allow soft to be able to maneuver more effectively to hit targeted areas? Because you can't, like I said, you can't just go to one village and be like, hey, Village A is the, the epicenter. Well, you have mm-hmm. to hit them all systematic or not systematically, but simultaneously, and affect the entire way. Or near near simultaneously, right? So, or this village and this village will bring this village. Right. right? Exactly. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's like that, it's that uh, you don't have to hit every island. Right. Like the island hopping campaign was, we're going to hit every island. Well, we could have saved a lot of lives by bypassing bypassing an island. Right. Right. Um, if you cut off same thing island, with the village. If you cut it off, they're going to play. Right. Sooner or later, they're going to play because they're going to see the benefits of it. So right? can going forward in today's fight, can snipers help affect this at oh, all? Oh, absolutely, particularly in this environment, right? I mean, when you look at the environments that we're in and the way the enemy operates, snipers are a huge protection force. So force why, don't, protection. why don't general officers understand that and why don't they implement conventional snipers in that way? I have no idea because I was all for it. 
and 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 we got conventional snipers to augment our soft snipers uh, in these operations because General Petraeus made sure that that happened. He also made sure that we got battalions to support soft instead of the other way around, mm -hmm. which is a huge paradigm shift, and everybody fought it. Nobody liked it, to include soft guys. And I was being accused by my own soft generals as being a traitor. Oh, he's teaching them how to do our job, so now the conventional guys are going to, are gonna, you know... Uh, I thought we were on the same mission. team, right? That's what I thought, too. Yeah. And I said, that's not going to happen. They're not organized to do that, sir. But what we are organized to do is help each other out. Mm -hmm. Whether soft is in support of conventional forces in a, in a conventional fight, or whether conventional forces are in support of soft in an unconventional environment. You know, what you're it doesn't talking, matter. What you're talking about right now is like, like the, 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 the hidden secret that I think a lot of snipers have been kind of fighting for their entire career. Because So when I, when I got to my unit, half the unit was Afghan vets, right? They were in Paktika province, and I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the book The Outlaw Platoon with Sean mm -hmm. Parnell. Yeah. So yeah. he was my platoon leader for the gener the generation before. Mm -hmm. I came in, I've got the leftovers of Gallagher, Roberts, and a couple other guys, and those kind of guys trickled on mm -hmm. to PCS or ETS. But uh, Roberts and Chavez are, were still there. Roberts is out of the Army now, and Chavez is still in. I talked to him actually the other day. Um, and they had come across guys fighting like the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan or Chechen snipers. Mm -hmm. And actually, third group, we were doing a, um, a daylight raid. And this is probably the coolest story I've, I've ever told. Like, one of those, I was like, ah, I want to be a sniper. This is when I knew it. And so <clears throat> we do a daylight raid in this compound. We pick up an HVT, like you're talking about. Third group's with us. Mm -hmm. Daylight raid, hit this guy's house. We're in a big armored convoy. Like, a like a, this is a, hey, we're here. You're messing off. We're here to mess you up. And we're mm -hmm. going to put an end to this, right? We're going to lob the head off the snake. So we go in there, we get MRAPs, we get Humvees, you know, the soft guys get their mini guns on top, and all of a sudden everyone realizes there's no room in any of the vehicles for this guy. <laughs> like, there isn't a single spot, no seat available. So some sniper's like, hey, we got some sling load hooks on the front of that Humvee. You got some zip ties? And I was like, thinking to myself, like, hmm, what's he going to do? Sure enough, we zip cuff this dude to the hood of the lead Humvee mm -hmm. and zip cuff his feet to the shackles on the hood. Mm -hmm. This guy's not going anywhere. And I'm kind of listening to my platoon sergeant talk to the, the sniper, and he's like, yeah, it's an IED deterrent. And I was like, that dude is genius. <laughs> Absolutely genius. So we start rolling down, and we get in a tick, or a troops in contact, a firefight in the front of the column. And sure enough, the dude in the lead Humvee is like, well, you're going to shoot him on IED, IED deterrent, I might as well shoot back. So he goes off with this minigun like in a cyclic mode, probably burns like 3,000 rounds like that. And the guy in the front of the hood is like freaking out. And I know that dude's eardrums are gone. Mm -hmm. So he's not going to be an effective commander if he lives through this anyway, because he's going to be deaf. So firefight goes on, whatever. And I see the snipers dismount and they run up on top of this collot. And so they, there's like five or six dudes that are running out in the open, probably about 600 meters away across the dry riverbed with guns. And these snipers dropped all of them in a matter of seconds. And I was like, that's a legitimate effect, psychological effect right now here on the battlefield. Those dudes took maybe six shots, eight shots. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Done. Boom. It's a dollar around. We're done with the day. Casualties are minimized. Soft got their job done. Conventional dudes got their job done. The snakes has its head lobbed off. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. We picked up and rolled off. And I was like, all right, that's, that's a legitimate thing right here that I just saw. I need to get in this community. I need to get into that world. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back, I started moving in that direction. But like this whole thing of what you're talking about, that's like a foreign concept nowadays. And I don't understand why... I hate to use it this way, but I think the sniper community is its own internal agency within the Army. Mm -hmm. It's got its own schoolhouse. 
right. the highest ranking sniper you're going to see in a section is probably a staff sergeant. Mm-hmm. After that, it's usually the first sergeant of the sniper school. There's nothing else kind of in between. Mm-hmm. The sergeant first classes are usually like in our scout section, <clears throat> or they go back to the line. And I think what the Army is what you're talking about is you spend all this time in retirement, and then you move a guy out. Well, it's the same thing in the sniper community. There's such a, a psychological and physical deterrent. Mm-hmm. They can you know stop and deny space very easily with minimal support. Mm-hmm. And then by the time they hit staff start, which they've only been in a section for three and a half years, maybe, they're barely breaking the surface of what a, a good sniper should be. Right. Training-wise and, and mentally, physically, they're barely breaking that surface at that point. And now they're like, all right, you're going back to the line, dude. See ya. And it's done. And you can't evolve this whole concept. And it just goes away. Right. So going back to what you're saying, where the conventional world is set up to support the soft world, it's very much true. But I don't think that the leadership especially now, understands that it can still be done. It's it can just, still be done, right. right. And and I ran into that, and we still haven't perfected that. We still haven't learned the lessons from um, Iraq and Afghanistan that apply to conventional warfare as well when SOF is in support of conventional forces or the other way around. Nobody likes it the other way around, conventional in support of SOF. That's the biggest rub, uh, and it's unfortunate we can't get past that. But the people that want that want to think and embrace that are the people that get, you know, sent away because it's not the conventional way of thinking about things. And so you're forced to join a club. You're forced to be part of of a thinking process that has got us into this 18-year war. We had something that was working. We got rid of it. Why? Because politics. Some, because of politics mm-hmm. and because. No, nobody with the four stars on their collar stood up. I stood up. I made a lot of noise. I got sent to Africa. Which is a punishment. Right, which, is, which was great. <laughs> I loved it. Four years in Africa. I mean, I learned a lot. And we were, we were doing and applying some of the same things that we were applying successfully in Afghanistan because it was different environment, different culture, different ideas. But the principles were the same. And we were having success, and again, I was very, very boisterous about we're not resourcing our guys properly. And so we're asking them to do things without the resources that we should be giving them. And for crying out loud, with the United States of America, we can resource. This, this, this whole idea about resource constraints and all this other stuff, crap. I wouldn't even dare tell President Trump if I was a senior leader in the military that, wow, we don't have the resources to do it, sir, because he would probably look at you and go, this is America, we'll get the resources, right? If we, there's, there's always a way. If we have a military mission, we're going to figure it out. And we had military missions in Africa very similar to the missions that we had in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Same, same thing. Yet our guys were being under-resourced. And I kept saying and I was banging the drum, and I felt like I wasn't doing my job. And I blamed myself for not being clever enough, smart enough uh, to get the resources, to convince people that we needed the resources. And I live with that. And it came to roost. I gave, gave up command on 29 June uh, 2017, 36 years after I went in the Army on 29 June 1981. Right. If it makes you feel any better when you commissioned, I wasn't even born. <laughs> well, that's okay. So, and boom, there I am, 29 June. I give up command. 
I have my retirement ceremony the same day, but I don't officially retire till 1 October 2017. Um, <clears throat> I do all my physical stuff and I do all my VA yeah, stuff. Yeah, processing, yeah. And I come home, and on 3 October 2017, we had the Niger ambush. Mm -hmm. And we had the Niger ambush because of a failure of leadership at the senior levels. United States AFRICOM, United States SOCOM, United States Army uh, Special Operations Command, and the United the First Special Forces Command. From two-star to four-star stateside, and from the general officer staff in AFRICOM to the AFRICOM commander. And we had to include the Special Operations Command Africa commander, who weren't doing their job and weren't properly supervising people and weren't listening to the guys on the ground saying, we don't have the resources, the training, and the relationship with our partners to execute this mission. That's a, we, that's a big comment right there. We the shouldn't point. do it. We shouldn't do it. And they were directed to do it anyways. They got ambushed. We lost four Americans, um, eight Nigerian partners. Uh, and, um, you know, when DOD released the video, the video was a remarkable example of how our guys fought hard and beat back a numerically superior enemy force, despite the fact they didn't have their resources. But because their American Special Operation Forces and the Nigerian partners stood their ground and took it for as long as they could, eventually having to you know, withdraw from the area so they didn't get completely uh, overrun and decimated. Uh, and we lost four people, one guy was missing uh, for a period of time, uh, and what did we do in the investigation? We did what we do in all investigations, and it's why I hate investigations. We blamed our guys at the lowest level and held near zero accountability at the higher level. I came out publicly on radio, on television, said that was a mistake, so they decided to hold the Special Operations Commander Africa commander, the guy that took my place uh, three months before this, um, who had no experience in Africa, never served in Africa, no experience in Africa, great guy, smart guy, Air Force two-star, hey, great, but he wasn't talent managed to take that job. It right? sounds like the mistake that the Army made uh, during uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, where Air Force comes in. They do a bunch of, you know, S2 intelligence gathering over uh, uh, Bagram Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. They're like, yep, bunch of tanks, craziness going on here. Right. The Rangers jump in mm -hmm. and they find out it's literally a tank raid. Right. Like, the Air Force didn't have the experience that I know some U2 right. pilots that mm -hmm. kind of, I know a couple of U2 pilots actually live in New Hampshire and they're kind of like, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about that. Yeah. Well, you know? <clears throat> you know, my point is, is that we have to have better policy. We have to have better strategy. We have to have better operational approach. Our general officers are less flexible and adaptive in environments they don't understand than our junior folks, than our junior um, field grade officers and our, comp and our, and our, uh, our uh, company grade officers and our NCOs. And our, they're more adaptable to these environments than we are at the senior level. And that has to be fixed and understood, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not doing that. The second thing is, is we need to cover their butts, right? These investigations that we've done in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other areas have done nothing but protect the senior levels. 
at the expense of our junior guys. I feel like, and that's wrong. I feel like that's wrong. Everything just is right. This is a snowball effect of shit rose downhill. Right. It's literally gotten so big. The snowman is so right. large that the, it can't even be stopped. And let me almost. tell you, I'm not perfect in all of this, right? I'm part of the. I was part of the problem, right? And I had to learn not to be part of the problem. So I say this, and I cast, you know, blame on senior members that were at my level, at the same time recognizing that, you know, I'm not free of sin on this, right? And so I had my responsibilities. And I feel so bad about that ambush because I warned everybody about it, and I knew because I couldn't get them the resources that someday something catastrophic like this would happen. And that's what we failed to explain. That's what we failed to take responsibility for. That's what we failed to have accountability for. And we see it in our Congress. We see it in our military. We see it in other interagencies. We see it in our, uh, our, you know, everywhere we look, accountability, responsibility. I got to the point as a battalion commander where nobody investigated my guys, battalion command and above, unless they came to talk to me first. And I already knew if they had done something illegal, immoral, or negligently unsafe. I already knew it, right? So you're not getting past me. You're not sending your little teams down there to do all your little stuff and then come up to me. You're going to start with me because my message to you is going to be... Because you're the one that started the whole right. process anyway. They worked for me. Mm -hmm. They were doing what I asked them to do. If this went wrong, it's my fault. Not their fault, my fault. Now, if somebody did something illegal or immoral, or negligently unsafe, then there was some accountability. But I already knew where that accountability needed to be placed and why, right? But I still protected my guys, because it's just like your kids. Oh, it's easy to raise a kid that's, you know, captain of the wrestling team, and he's an A student, and he's dating the prom queen, right? But a kid that gets in trouble, a kid's at the exact opposite, that's when your leadership skills come in the most, and they're the most important. And you're not going to kick your kid out of your house. And so you shouldn't kick your soldier out, right? Right. You should, hey, they need to be held accountable for their actions. Don't misunderstand what I'm you, saying. You teach them what, the difference between right and wrong. Right. And then you let them go. And if they right. do something wrong that they know is wrong, boom, then you come down. But, right. But if, if they're doing something right and someone else somewhere else thinks they're doing something wrong, then that's where you can Then they're dealing like, with me. Right. Right? Just like... You know, just like I would do for my kids, right? I'd stick up for my kids, right? Mm -hmm. And and I'm not making the analogy that soldiers and service member are kids. They're not. They're adults. No, what you're, and I what love you're talking about is the family aspect. Yes. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same People, family. People, family, mission. Right. That's so, my mantra. So uh, that being said, I want I want to lead into the next portion yep. of this, yep. which I know you're very early on, so I don't want to spool up the energy too much. Mm -hmm. But so you're running for Senate. I am running for and, U.S. Senate. And I kind of told you a little bit about... Uh, before we started the podcast about this, but uh, for the listeners, there's a thing in the military where you have training solutions and material solutions. And what you're talking about in earlier in the podcast is a mix of training and material solutions, the combination mm -hmm. of, right? So I believe going forward with this, you've got the right potion, so to speak, the right experience, <laughs> the right mindset to be mm -hmm. a representative. And that's a lot with Senate and congressmen, which I don't think you see very often. They just go there I'm the leader. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to fix taxes. You can all use the same bathroom. We're good mm -hmm. to go. I'm the leader. That's how it goes. I don't I don't think that's a good mission for success or a good mantra for success, right? I see, and I, don't, I want to use this as a, uh, an enlightenment term here. 
the older breed of, of generation where they went to Afghanistan, they learned the hard way. And now they're coming back and they're getting uh, experience in America in the politics realm, right? And a, a lot of your generation I looked up to when I first came in. These guys understood how it works. They were teaching us the right stuff. We were making good headway. Casualties were stabilizing. And all of a sudden they went away like we talked about. But in, in <clears throat> moving forward, your generation is now sliding into the political stage to be like, hey, whoa, wait a second here. There's some social solutions, there's economic solutions, and there's legal solutions to all of this. Mm-hmm. We can't just go flinging laws and words everywhere and you know, uh, watering down the system. So if you could kind of maybe reflect on how all that experience has allowed you to kind of maintain the integrity of our constitution, our system, our family, and kind of the state in general, and just our, our political system. Right. So right now, my experience has been that <clears throat> we've evolved into this politics of power and money that has completely undermined the what it should be, and that is politics of character and integrity. And so we're electing people based off of the wrong rubric, right? How much money they have, how much, uh, what their political machine is, how they can stay in power, how they can continue to impose their will. The whole idea of, of personal responsibility, accountability, and servant leadership is non-existent in a lot of our congressmen and senators. And the longer they stay there, the more that this has become a political career the more that they leverage their identity, the more they leverage their, um, their economic well-being on keeping their political job <clears throat> and turning into multimillionaires while they're supposed to be serving you. Supposed to be a representative. Right. We're not going to get any better or see any change that we you know, absolutely need. The constituent support aspect of what you're getting to is so degraded now across the country. And if we look at it in New Hampshire, it is the single number one reason that got me into running for the United States Senate. And that is that as as a retired general, as someone who knows a lot about the military, knows a lot about veterans, has learned a lot about the veterans problem, who gets his care from the VA, who is intimately involved in this whole process and system. Someone who's got a lot of knowledge, a lot of credibility. I don't know everything, but I'm a very good spokesman for our veterans because of the fact that I served at the lowest level, private, and came out at the top of my career field as a general, right? That's not to brag. That's just to say, maybe you should listen to me when I call your office and say, I think, you know, we have a problem we need help with. Well, that, that's, and I, I would say that's a bragging point for sure. It's very hard, and most people don't understand that some guys stay in the military and they only make start first class. They've been in for 20 years. You've got a guy that went from, I don't mean to over you know, boast about this, but there's something to be said for that, that someone believes in you somewhere that you have the right potential for things. Right. We, never, we never promote in the military because you already know how to do the right. job. We promote in the military because you have the potential to do the right job going forward. And I think that's very much a huge aspect that's missing in politics that most people don't understand is that it's not about what you can do. It's what the potential you have to, right. to make positive changes. For others. Right. And you're not going to win and you're not, you're not going to win everything. Right. You're going to lose some and you're going to lose mm-hmm. some badly. Right. And I think a lot of politics are like, hey, 
I have a great track record. But what's different about you is I saw I have a track record of potential and improvement. Mm -hmm. Everyone makes mistakes. You're a human being. You put your pants on the same way I do. Right. And that's what makes the difference to me. That's why I asked in this podcast. I was like, wait a second. There's a different dynamic here. This isn't just political riffraff and playing the game. This is heartfelt. It's honest. And most of all, it's important to me because I'm talking to a guy that I just know. He just, hey, I can do this. I can Mm -hmm. help. I've got the potential for this. Let me go and do it. Right. And and so when I get to... You know, when I get to that main reason, I mean, I asked, sent letters, phone calls to both congressmen at the time um, in New Hampshire uh, and both senators, currently serving senators. There's been a change in the congressperson, but bottom line is the two senators still sit there. And the senator that I'm running against never reached out, never, ever reached out. The other senator did, and I developed a good working relationship with her, right? And we, and working with her staff, we wrote legislation to help out veterans, and we have a bill that's going to help out finding missing veterans so that we lose less veterans that go missing. What, what bill is this? It's called the Green Alert System, uh, and it's Maggie Hassan and her staff who's helped me with it. Now, I already have a working relationship with Maggie Hassan, Senator Hassan, and her staff, and um, I have been told that I get along with her better than Jean Shaheen does, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not even there yet, but it's it's what you're talking about. It's it's having humility. It's willing to work with other people. It's it's servant leadership. It's about understanding doing something for the greater good, not for yourself. I'm not going down there for myself. I'm going down there. I'm going to keep my same VA medical coverage until we fix yours. How can you serve? as a representative from your state, whether you're a senator or a representative, and have better health care and better benefits than those that you serve. You know there's a law against that. That is just wrong. You know there's a law against that already, right? It's wrong. There's a law against it. I think it's the 28th Amendment that says you cannot pass a law in Congress or the Senate that that you are not subject to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's ever been held to the fire to be like, hey, you're doing A. Well, I'm going to hold people But you're making fire. everyone else doing B. One thing that really sets in my craw real hard is anyone who aspires to a leadership position and uses that leadership position to operate at the expense of others, in particular those that they're supposed to be serving. And that is just wrong. And we have to change that culture. And the only way you're going to change that is by changing people and getting people down there that understand leadership and leadership's full 360-degree dimensions. And that is, just because you're a leader doesn't mean you're in charge of everything and you can order people around. It means that you have to get down there and work with people. And I use my position as a senator for the greater good. And you got to roll up your sleeves Mm -hmm. because you can't wring your hands and roll up your sleeves at the same time. So you got to figure out who you're going to be. And we have too many hand wringers and we're not getting anything done. And we are stagnated as this country. And the biggest thing that they're responsible for is budget and deficit. And that is the clear and present danger for the future of our country. And I think that as a congressperson, congressman, senator, really doesn't matter, whatever you are, you don't pass a budget by 1 October, you don't get paid. Okay. So, 
Their number one job is to pass a budget. If they don't pass that budget by 1 October, then they don't get paid. And there's no back pay associated with this either. Until such time as you pass a budget, then your pay starts up again. You don't get paid if you don't do your job. I don't get paid if I don't do my job. We get fired if we don't do it. Right. But they get there, and they stay there, and they continue to operate at, at our expense. The budget is the number one thing. Right now, we're, our country's operating on a two-week continuing resolution. They're back to vote on a four-week continuing resolution, and we can't run this country that way. They're too, busy, they're too busy doing impeachments. And then when we shut down the government, who gets paid? Congress gets paid, but the Coast Guard doesn't. That's wrong, too. Mm-hmm. Government shutdown is the ultimate, the ultimate malfeasance of a political elected official. You are there to keep the government running on the behalf of others. When you don't do that, you're in trouble. So we have a chance now to change that, and that's why I'm running. I am running because of ineffective leadership, because my opponent— You've been on the receiving side of that, too. Oh, I know exactly what it looks like, and I know what it feels like. And and I think just about every politician, except for maybe Dan Dan Crenshaw and a couple of other veterans, don't understand that when the government gets shut down, they don't get—I mean, they understand it. Like, hey, I'm in Congress now. If I don't do this right, dudes don't get paid. Mm-hmm. And I was that dude at one point. And it's it's like being a humble, soft guy, right? Right. You understand where you came from. You never forget that. You, right. At some point, you came from the conventional world. Exactly. And I think uh, in my lifetime, those have been the mm-hmm. best soft guys I've ever met. They're like, hey, you're a conventional dude. Here, let me help you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when they get to the political level, they're still some of the best guys I've ever met. Hey, I remember where you were when you got out of the Army. Let me help you, right? Right. When they get into politics, hey, I know what it's like to struggle as a regular civilian. Let me represent you because I've been in the same shoes that you're in now. Right, exactly. And I don't exactly. think politicians that haven't done military service understand that at all. Right. And like you said earlier, it's about their economic mm-hmm. financial stability. Yeah. And that's so, a huge problem. So, real quick, I'm keeping my VA health care, and I'm not taking that health care until we fix yours. I've already signed an affidavit for term limits, two terms. That's it. That's all any of us need. And then we need to go back and apply what we learned to help our communities. That's what we do. The longer we keep this a career, the more diminishing returns you're going to have because mm-hmm. they're operating to get themselves reelected, to maintain their power, and to become multimillionaires. The person I'm running against was not a millionaire when, when she went to, to the Senate. She's a multimillionaire now. She's worth $5.5 million. She owns wow. more property in Maine than she does in New Hampshire, right? Her and her family. Might not be in her name. Maybe she should go family. represent Maine then. You know, maybe she should, <laughs> right? Um, and so this is a problem. And it starts with leadership and understanding leadership. It starts with servant leadership, personal accountability. It starts with re- personal responsibility. I don't know everything and I know it. That means I'm going to ask others and learn from others. I don't, I'm not down there with, you know, 99 other people. I'm down there with 1.3 million people behind me. And I have to leverage them to solve problems. That's one thing we don't do. Mm -hmm. We don't come back, right? One of the things that I learned in the military is you can sit in your office and come up with the greatest ideas that you think are the greatest ideas in the world, right? Until you try to implement it. Until you try to implement it. someone punches you in the face. Right, exactly. So if you're not getting the buy-in and working with the people who have the best ideas, Mm -hmm. and as a leader, getting those ideas out so we can help the greater good, then you're making a big mistake. And that's what we're missing down there. It's not a swamp down there. It's a septic tank with all kinds of stuff running through it that needs to be cleaned up. 
and we need to send different people down there to do it. Like I said, not the smartest. I don't have all the answers, but I know where to find all the answers. Um, and um, I'll make mistakes, and I'm willing to admit that I make mistakes. I've made mistakes and admitted them with you today, Yeah. right? Um, that's how we need to roll, and, and people not, respect that. They're not just mistakes. It, not just like I, you know, spilt the, the glass on the table, right? I right. My milk. Right. This is a mistake that is lifelong, that has huge second, third order effects. That is mm-hmm. not just, it's not just simple. And I, you know, I interview a lot of snipers, and I've got some other stuff that I'm not going to put on because some of my deal with them is that hey, mm-hmm. when they pass, then it gets published. And and the history lessons that they teach about things are are lessons which I wish we had learned earlier. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're coming forward with this, be like, hey, I've learned the lesson. It needs to be taught. Let's work this out right. before it gets so deep of a sludge tank that mm-hmm. you can't even replace the tank. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's getting there. But it's I getting think, you know, <clears throat> you know, you you're, you're living history into fixing this sludge tank. Right, right. And, you know, you look at the problems that we have and you look at the leadership approach in Washington, D.C., and you can draw a straight line to why we're not solving any problems and it's ineffective leadership and everything that that means right um, and you know a lot of people look at leaders well I'm in charge kind of kind of uh, approach and and that is just a small part you're, you're a representative you're not in charge of anything the, you know the way I look at a leader I'm a leader because that's where blame is assigned right right that's the most important part about understanding you're a leader like it or not, that's where blame should be assigned. It doesn't mean that others aren't going to be held accountable. That just means that you're in charge, and that's where the that's where the buck stops, right? Mm-hmm. And or starts, right? Or starts, mm-hmm. and you guys got to get out there and try and make things happen with everybody else, not um, outside. Or Re- realistically, it it goes either either you deliver the intent of the people, mm-hmm. right, or you give them an, an intent to to work around or behind, right? right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you say, for example, term limits, mm-hmm. right? The intent is that I'm going to do my job. My job is to mm-hmm. represent you, right? And I'm going to do in those term limits. Mm-hmm. Well, that's leadership. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about other people, right? And you're representing them. And then if you if if you give them something, like if you come back and you're constantly working with them, you're delivering their intent. Their intent was, we're going to make you a representative of us. Right. It's two-fold system. It, it's, it has to be, I hold your hand, you hold my hand, mm-hmm. to use an Afghan way of putting things. Right. Mm-hmm. You can't just go up there and be like, hey, thanks for the vote, and my right. pocket's thick now. You just yeah. can't do it. No. Otherwise, you'll never get anything done. No, and, and it's not the right thing to do. And I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror, to be honest with you, because that's not the way I was rolled. That's not the way I'm taught. That's not my belief system. Uh, and if you want to be a public servant, then you have to you know, understand that it's not about you. And... Boy, anything that looks like it's you know, you know, going to add to your benefit, you got to put a stop to it, right? You well, got the to benefit is that out. you get to represent things, you get to deliver that's the, the people's honor. intent, right? That's the that's honor. the benefit from it, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's about service before self, right? That's and I've I've never had anything ever in my life that I've never been more proud of than service before self. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, I've right. got two younger sisters, I've got a son now. One of my sisters has uh, a daughter now, and I'm an uncle. And it's like, man, my family is safe here. They're good to go because mm-hmm. I went and did something for right. them, not because yeah, exactly. not because they did things for me. And I think when you reflect, some of the some of the things that you regret the most is when you didn't do that. And mm-hmm. we're all susceptible to that. We're only human, right? Uh, and but we we have to constantly fight that. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the more experience you have in leadership, the better you are at fighting that off, you know. Mm-hmm. None of us are perfect leaders. None of us, you know, are free of mistakes or failure. Uh, what makes you successful is being to accept your mistakes, learn from them, move forward, not make them again. And if you fail, picking yourself back up and moving forward, right? Uh, and, and then admitting it, right? Admitting it. That's what a lot of people don't want to admit it. They think that's a weakness, and I think it's a, it's a huge strength. I used to tell my guys, do a self-assessment, be self-aware, understand yourself. Most importantly, work on your weaknesses and let other people around you know what your weaknesses are. I used to give a whole briefing to my guys on my leadership weaknesses because they're mine and I fight with them every single day. And, and you have to know this so that when you see it, you can recognize it and we can help each other. You know, right? that's, that's a good point because I've never heard of a candidate or a potential candidate, right, say, hey, I've got weaknesses. Mm-hmm. There's no one that's ever said that to my knowledge. I think the last person I heard about weaknesses was like Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Know? That's like the last guy I heard. Like, I've got some weaknesses, but it'll sort itself out, right? Right. I haven't heard one in modern day, even through my friends or family or, you know, my grandparents say, that, hey, that guy's got some weaknesses, but he's got good weaknesses. Yeah. You know, like he can, he knows where they are. He understands right. himself, mm-hmm. right? Not a single one. So that's right. a huge, I'm going to give you some bullet points there. All right. You know, I've never heard that before. <laughs> well, I've got some weaknesses. And At and, least in the politicians' right. I've never heard it. Yeah, and... And you don't hear it on the general officer side either. Um, I have never heard a general officer talk to me about their weaknesses or use their weaknesses as an example on how you can become a better leader. I routinely did that with my guys, right, with the guys that I worked for, with the guys inside my command. Um, and I tell you what, they never got, never got held against me. You know, they never held it against me. Uh, I got judged by other people uh, because they didn't like the technique. Right, because it might put pressure on them to use the technique. You know what I mean? Everyone skins a cat differently, and yeah. just because you do your thing, let me do my yeah. thing. But right? that doesn't mean you can't learn from how the next guy's skinning the cat. You learn from everybody, right? right? I mean, I've learned a tremendous amount just in this conversation alone, right? Well, so, I'm glad I can help. You know, right? <laughs> uh, and so, and I'm hoping that you know, you know, out there and the folks that listen to your podcast, you know, take away one thing: I care. Um, I, I want to do the right thing by other people, uh, and I value first and foremost, you know, character and integrity, and I apply that to helping people, family, and doing my mission, whatever that happens to be, you know, helping veterans, teaching uh, class here at New England College, or uh, leadership um, seminars or running for the United States Senate, you know? Well, I hope, I hope you certainly make it. You've got my vote. I just want... Well, thank you. From my perspective, I just some, want someone to not jack up the system anymore. Right. Like, I just... There's I won't so many, do that. There's so many frustrations I have. Just don't jack it up, <laughs> yeah, you know? That's right. And don't... I, the biggest thing is, like, my mom was telling me the other day, she's like, ask him, ask him how long it's going to take him to become a politician. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean by that? She's like... Is he going to do term limits? Is he going to go down there and then forget we're up here and yeah. just go become a millionaire? And you've literally covered everything my mom's fear was. Mm-hmm. You know, i got to give a little shout-out to my mom every day. Yeah. She's a nice lady. Strict, That's but nice. wise man. <laughs> She's strict, but nice. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've, you've covered everything that I feel I need to know. 
you've covered everything my mother feels she needs to know. That's mm-hmm. really important, right? If mom's happy, no one's happy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you've covered most of everything that veterans want to know. Mm-hmm. Guys who are still in talking about the lessons learned in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I think we're gonna have to do more podcasts as this ramps mm-hmm. up because um, I think guys, guys and gals can learn a lot from you. Say another veteran gets out in ten years, right. and they want to run for senate. Mm-hmm. You're setting kind of like the plank example you're laying the first foundation mm-hmm. and it needs to be built upon and carried on <clears throat> it's super important so i think i think we should do some more podcasts i think you I, yeah and i'd be honored to do it i i think you're you hit on a good point so 33 years of active duty service is a great apprenticeship for sitting on the senate armed services committee keyword it, being apprenticeship you yes, still have much to learn it's a good apprenticeship yep. for sitting on the foreign arm foreign foreign relations committee it's a great apprenticeship for sitting on the Veterans Affairs Committee. I am gonna work my butt off for veterans, right? My biggest key area is the transition from DOD to becoming a veteran. It is so broke. It's, it's and not we only have broke, to fix it. but it's so hard. It's hard, it's, it's wicked hard. And it's like, you, you create this huge life. Right. And, and, I, and I'll say, people ask me all the time if I miss the Army. I don't miss the Army a single second. What I miss is the people yeah, baby. in the Army. I knew right? you were going to say that. <laughs> I say the same thing. I, I hate I hate the machine that the Army is. I understand yeah. it's a necessary evil at times. Yeah. But I don't like the way the Army is expanding itself, right? But I love the people. And that's why I switched over to the sniper community because the guys are all hand-selected. They're intelligently above everyone else. Mm-hmm. They're not a soft guy by any means. I'm sure some soft guys are like, oh, great, another sniper, right? But they have those same qualities, and most snipers end yeah, up you in do. the selection pipeline. Of course you do. They end up in that pipeline. They're an unconventional guy in a conventional space. Right. And I think you're an unconventional guy in a conventional space, which is that transition from DOD mm-hmm. to the civilian world. And now you're an unconventional guy in a conventional space. Right. And I think that's a huge component because the guys that are stuck in this sewage system that are conventional right. never think unconventionally are guys and gals, politicians. Mm-hmm. They just add to the sludge. Right. But they don't, they don't have... They don't have metacognition. They don't have the ability to think about what they're thinking about and AAR themselves or after action review themselves in the space. In the space they're in, right. right. That's a huge component and it's super important. It is hugely important. And, you know, uh, you know, you said something that, um, that, you know, you know, really, you know, really resonates with me, you know, when it comes to uh, the, you know, how hard it is to transition from active duty to becoming a veteran. Uh, my wife says that of, you know, she was with me for 30 years, and she says still is still with is you. with me. Yes, she's still <laughs> with me. Yes, uh, and you know, of, of the military, and she says the hardest transition, the hardest thing she's done in the military, is transition out. I mean, they cut you loose. They forget about you. You're in. You're in on a Monday. You're, you're in you're, on a Friday. Done. You're out you know, on a Monday. That's I call it. it the point to hook, of getting <laughs> out of the military. You fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And and you fall into this abyss, and you know we got to do better by our by our guys. We got to do better by our guys and gals that get out. Um, and I want to change that system in Washington D.C. That bureaucratic system that ha- doesn't have the, the the right leadership. We know where the president wants to go. I know where the president wants to go. But every time he signs something, it gets stuck in this bureaucracy where it goes nowhere. And we need mm-hmm. to fix that big time. And we can fix it. And I have some ideas. And I will be working my butt off for veterans. Veterans in New Hampshire can change 
this election. It's not about just the veterans in New Hampshire at this point. It's about veterans no, everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. right. But I'm talking about my race. I mean, I get elected in the United States Senate here in New Hampshire. Veterans can win this race. They don't know. They don't know that their numbers are unbelievable. And no other candidate that I've been able to research has ever captured the majority of the veteran vote. You know, uh, one of the... the and I'm going to work my butt off <clears throat> to earn their vote. To, to add to this, the senator that you're running against, Shaheen, mm -hmm. um, the past couple of years I've been going to the Veterans Cemetery here in Bosco and every year for Veterans Day Memorial mm -hmm. Day, as well as uh, a buddy that I served with that was killed in action. We were in the same company. He went to Cockard High, which is a couple towns over from us. Um, we got stuck in the same company. We were like nine months apart and joined the military, never knew the guy, showed up the companies I came from New Hampshire. Nice to meet you. I'm like, cool. Another dude. Cool. That's great. Yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So he gets killed, unfortunately, in August of 09. He's buried there. So once a month, I go down there and I, I say mm -hmm. hi to him and check out his foxhole, as well as my grandfather's buried there. So I got two foxholes to check mm -hmm. out. To me, that cemetery is literally like hollow ground. Right. And the senators that I see that come in there every Veterans Day and Memorial Day, I just, they just don't get it. They just don't get how hard every single one of those dudes in that cemetery is either had to fight for their transition mm -hmm. or that that's the transition that they were given, unfortunately, mm -hmm. right? And uh, this year when they were there, I hadn't seen them visit that cemetery all year or talk about anyone in that mm -hmm. cemetery all year or think about the people that will eventually be in those, that cemetery mm -hmm. coming the coming years, whether from old age or you know other instances. I don't think I've heard her say one thing about it, not even right. in political ads, yeah. nothing. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I do a lot of things on all those holidays. Uh, and, but one thing that I do do, um, is I pull off the highway to go to Boscoin when I'm traveling up north or I'm traveling back just to stop in, say hi, get out of my car, walk over to a veteran that's buried there, take a knee and say a prayer. That's what I do. It's, right? it's not even just I don't about even being there on specific days. Right. Right. The, the. Every day's, every day's a veteran's every day. Every day's a veteran's mm -hmm. day, right? And that's what I try to say. Uh, and and so, to me, you know, politicizing a particular day is, ex it smells and is exactly what you intend it to be, right? And it's just an opportunity to say, I support veterans. You call a goose a goose, right? Yeah, and that's that's not supporting veterans. But that's what they think it is. And it's wrong. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, I know someday I'm going to be buried in that cemetery. Uh, and so uh, it is a, um, it is Howard ground, right? Mm -hmm. It is. And Literally, my family's there. Every single mm -hmm. one of the, that, those yeah. men and women, that's my family. Yeah. And I feel more connected. They're all our family. I, can, I feel more connected yeah. to them than any politician. You walk in there, it's, it's unbelievable. And when I first... You know, got back to New Hampshire, and, and I went there, and I realized it's the number one, it's the number one cemetery in the country, the way it's run, the way it's taken care of. I mean, I mean, it's unbelievable the work that's done there and the care mm -hmm. that's done there, and I am so proud of that uh, because it is what they deserve, right? So, anyways, I'm, I'm honored to uh, have had this opportunity to talk to you. Hey, it's Thank great you. to have you on, and uh, Thank you. we're obviously pulling for it. i got to get a yeah. sign in my yard. Thanks. I saw, I saw on your website, which if you don't mind yeah. saying your website, yeah. which is... www.donbaldick.com. 
If you're a veteran, you can sign up Veterans for Baldick. I have it both for the state of New Hampshire and for veterans outside the state of New Hampshire. I have literally so many endorsements from, um, from uh, veteran organizations to include uh, Vets for Trump and, you know, the national organization and, you know, uh, everything. I'm just, um, I'm just honored to have their support. And I know, I know how much, uh, how much that means and what you have to do to earn it because they're those kind of people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we're going to do another podcast cause this is, I've got so many more questions, but for now, thanks Love for coming to. on. Thank you. I appreciate it. For those of you listening, we appreciate you coming on. Um, we're probably about an hour and a half into the podcast, so make sure you get some time if you've made it this far to tune in for the next one. So, uh, as always, guys, from the tall grass, one shot, one kill. Thanks. God bless you all.